This is TechSnap, episode 357. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on February 20th, 2018. It is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is the admin, the DevOps, and the presenter, Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. Our warm-up story has me chuckling. I can't tell if it's a joke or serious, but maybe we're actually going to get something positive out of something that's almost always a pain in the arse. Enter Words of Heart, the website that answers the question no one ever asked. What if you dated someone who used the same password? Wait, what? That's right, Chris. You've tried them all. There's a plethora of dating apps for people trying to find their soulmate. But maybe it's not the things you share in, in work or in hobbies that, are, that really matter. Maybe that's your password. You're telling me there's a website I go into. I put in my password, and then it finds other people that use the same crappy password? Yeah, that's right. Wordsofheart.com. It's had its 15 minutes of fame over in the InfoSec Twitter sphere this past week. And at first, people weren't quite sure. Is this serious? What's going on? This has got to be some crazy phishing scheme, right? No, no. It turns out that although the website works exactly as advertised, yes, we tested it over here on the TechSnap program. TechSnap Don't you program worry. Investigates. Yeah, we're on, we're on there. You can come find us if you want. Oh, gosh. Good on you, Wes. But no guarantees we'll be responding to that particular bit of feedback. Yeah, that's not a good avenue. <laughs> but uh, Motherboard got in contact with Christoph Zajak, the creator of the site, and he revealed that the site is not actually a serious endeavor. He came up with the idea as a joke and decided it would just be funny to implement. And you know what? I think I think he's right about that because it does sort of explain a little bit about why this is such a bad idea. And it might it's a nice proof of, proof of concept. One thing I haven't seen that I would love to is the source code, right? Like that would be that would be great to have, especially I'm especially curious. I hope he's hashing these passwords and still following some good practices. I assume you used a sacrificial password? Of course. The crazy thing about this is there could be some logic here. You know, if you're lazy and you use a lazy password, you probably want a partner who's going to chill with you and be lazy. And if you're really high-strung about password and security, you probably want a partner that is high-strung about those same things. There could be some legitimacy to the idea. <laughs> Unfortunately for us, I think that means we won't be finding our soulmate match anytime soon. Why go to the trouble of having users submit their password to your website when you could just cut out the middleman and steal it directly yourself? Flight Sim Company... Flight Sim Labs has found itself in a ton of trouble after installing malware onto users' machines as an anti-piracy measure. Code embedded in its A320X module, simulated in the A320, I imagine, contained a mechanism for detecting quote-unquote pirate serial numbers distributed on, you guessed it, the Pirate Bay, which then triggered a process through which the company stole usernames and passwords from users' web browsers. Well, what? This is one of those stories that may have never really been uncovered if it wasn't for a curious user who also had a Reddit account. Yeah, that's right. Over on Reddit, Cranky Recursion reported a little extra something in his download of Flight Sim Labs A320X module. After digging in a little bit, he found a rather suspicious exe called test.exe, which he identified as a download from securityexploded.com and was touted as a Chrome password dump tool which actually seems to work, particularly as the installer would typically run with administrative rights on Windows Vista and above. So you're already running it as admin. It has full access to get any files it needs. Just dumps the Chrome password store. 
And if you're updating a game and you see a UAC prompt come up during the update, during the setup process of a game, you're it's expecting not really that. suspicious yeah, at all. That no. seems normal. Now, Flight Sim Lab's chief, Lefteris Calamaras, made a statement basically admitting that his company was, in fact, behind the malware installation. We were made aware there's a Reddit thread started tonight regarding our latest installer and how a tool is included in it that indiscriminately dumps Chrome passwords. That is not correct information. In fact, the thread was posted by a person who is not our customer and has somehow obtained our installer without purchasing. Calamaris wrote. I like the implication there that he's a pirate. Yeah, right, exactly. That's already in their statement, just as an implication. So, in a nutshell, Flight Sim Labs installed a password dumper onto everyone's machine, whether they were pirates or not, but then only activated that module when it was determined that you were using a specific pirate serial number that they had already identified. So, test.exe is part of the quote-unquote DRM, and is only targeted against specific pirate copies of copyrighted software obtained illegally. That program is only extracted temporarily and is never under any circumstances used in legitimate copies of the product, they wrote. Adding another twist here, it looks like Flight Slim Labs is also interested in grabbing information they can use in potential future legal battles. This method has already successfully provided information that we're going to use in our ongoing legal battles against such criminals. But even with that, clearly there's been a lot of outcry here. So the company is now pointing customers to a new installer that doesn't include code for stealing their most sensitive data. So the company's defense is we were being attacked by somebody that was cracking our serial code system using a pirated key and distributing our software. So we set up this script system to monitor for that serial key. And then... When that serial key was detected, we fired up the Chrome password dumper, and we used that information to try to take somebody to court. Am I tracking? Yeah, that's that sounds exactly right, I'm afraid. This is kind of unusual behavior, at least in, in cases I'm familiar with that are similar. Now, there is some degree of implicit trust, right? When you install a game with DRM, you, you are often, as we've just said, granting administrative rights. So there's a certain amount of trust there, but also you've given up a certain amount of control of your machine in, in that engagement. But I don't think anyone expects to have their password stolen from totally unrelated activities. Now, you know, a ban, a a system set up so that they could no longer use the service, that would seem to make a lot of sense. This maybe goes a bit too far. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. ixsystems believes that open source technology has the power to change the world through its process of open collaboration and innovation. This principle fuels all product designs at ixsystems. By leveraging decades of expertise in hardware design, it contributes to many open source software communities and... They provide corporate stewardship for leading open source projects, including FreeNAS and TrueNAS. iX Systems has become an industry leader in building innovative storage solutions and superior enterprise servers for global marketplaces that rely on open technology. iX Systems has become the industry leader in building innovative storage and superior enterprise servers. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. If you're looking for open source driven enterprise storage and server and hardware software solutions for one to thousands of clients ixsystems.com slash techsnap. I've gotten a real sense of this company and the people behind it, and you might have an opportunity as well if you go to open source events. They're often there. You can also follow them on Twitter, twitter.com slash ixsystems. Enterprise-grade service solutions for small businesses and large enterprise. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. With the rise of cryptocurrencies and specifically some of these altcoins like Monero, we're seeing crypto jacking really take off. Some even call it an epidemic these days, and everyone's getting in on the game. This week, it's Tesla. Yeah, this is coming out of Redlock Security's report when they looked into Tesla's Kubernetes setup. 
Yeah, they'd been previously researching and scanning for Kubernetes consoles that had been misconfigured in this way. So in this case, it was just not password protected at all. Well, they're busy making your car drive itself. They don't got time to set passwords. They were infected with the WannaMine malware, which is a tool using Mimikatz to pull credentials from computers' memory and then get access to other computers on the network. From there, they install a cryptocurrency miner to mine, you guessed it, Monero, quietly in the background. It seems like we're really seeing a snowball effect. We're witnessing the evolution of cryptojacking as hackers recognize the massive upside that they can get by getting into somebody's system and just mining a little bit of coin and then just sit back and wait for the prices to rise. Yeah, to start off with, uh, first they just got some access to sensitive information. They were able to see some credentials that gave them access to uh, some S3 buckets. Yes, of course, that had sensitive data such as various telemetry metrics recorded from some of Tesla's automobiles. In addition to that, though, they were, of course, mining more crypto. Um, unlike other crypto mining instances, though, they did not use a well-known public mining pool in this attack. Instead, they installed mining pool software and configured the malicious script to connect to an unlisted or semi-public endpoint. This makes it a little, a little more difficult for us to keep track of their activity and see how much money they're making. They also used Cloudflare to hide the true IP address of the mining pool server. So they get a new IP address on demand by registering for free CDN services with Cloudflare, and this makes it even harder to track. They also took a little care to try and be sneaky. When researchers looked at the Kubernetes dashboard hosts, they did not notice high CPU usage or any other red alerts that the system was infected. Mm, that does make it a little more tricky to even detect this activity. I think it's particularly interesting that this bit Tesla in this case, you know, we generally think of them as a pretty a new, a modern, a technologically savvy organization. And it just goes to show that if you don't, you know, institutionalize these things, have a lot of auditing and checks. Today, software, cloud-based services are so complex, it's easy to let one thing slip and then it escalates from there. Is this where something like InSpec comes in? If you're not familiar with InSpec, it's an open source testing framework from the people behind Chef. It's for infrastructure, and it features human and machine readable language for specifying compliance, security, and policy requirements. So you can do things like say that Telnet D must be installed, or that SSH must be running, and then its protocol version must be two. So this is from Chef. And how is InSpec different than Chef itself? Chef does make InSpec. But you don't necessarily have to use Chef to get some benefits from InSpec. Um, InSpec is a testing language modeled a lot after RSpec, which is a popular testing framework for Ruby. And it aims to have language that's easy for humans to read, but also machine parsable. So you, you see things like describe AWS IAM root user. Do it should have MFA enabled. It should not have access key. And so these are ways where in, easy it's semi-easy semi to read, even if you're not quite familiar, by, by making a lot of high-level resources, and then you can describe what policies you want. And then something that I think is rather unique to InSpec in many ways is it actually compiles down to different OS-level primitives, and then you can run it. So it itself um, runs through Ruby. It compiles down to native OS calls. And so all you need, you don't have to have Ruby, you don't have to have a big runtime on your client systems, and it supports a ton of operating systems, including Windows. You can connect remotely to the host and then have Inspect check the host. It runs all of its tests and then prints out a really nice output you can read that'll say, is your system in compliance? And then there's a bunch of different ways where you can try to hook that up into automated systems, give you compliance reports, 
all that jazz. What's newsworthy this week is version 2.0 shift. Yeah, that's right. And it's not a it's not a huge radical change, uh, but it is a good milestone. They've integrated a whole bunch of new cloud functionality. So um, as that example I was just talking about, you can now test AWS buckets for permissions. They have a whole bunch of built-in AWS and Azure resources that you can just use, run them. Now you do have to configure everything so it can connect to your AWS account, of course. Uh, but once you've done that, you can have this run, you know, Jenkins can run it. Whatever automation you're already using, you can plug this in, have it run tests. And now that means you can test some of these some of these more esoteric resources as well as running inspect tests against your EC2 instances, against your private infrastructure, whatever you have on your system. Hey, maybe we'll start seeing less. This bucket was left wide out into the open stories here on the TechSnap program. Inspect is open source and we'll have a link to the GitHub page in the show notes. And I'm digging this readable language that they have. Like having zero experience with Inspect, I can read the examples here and completely understand what it's doing. Yeah, it has a huge value. And I think that means it can be used across teams. Developers can write it. System administrators can write it. Security engineers can write it. And they can all agree and have one place to sort of test against and have standards that are also testable. Yeah, auditable. And you can audit Mac, Linux, and Windows using this thing. Exactly. So you've used Inspect personally. Yeah, I have. It's actually remarkably flexible. Um, it's modeled a lot after ServerSpec, which which was a, a previous project that is, is somewhat simpler, but is now no longer maintained. It was really an extension on RSpec. You had to have Ruby on this host. So Inspect has this idea of being, you know, really cross-platform. You have to craft it, you have to have a machine that has Ruby to, to compile the resources to then run it, but all you do is connect remotely, and that makes it have a wide applicability. I've used it a bunch for actually auditing machines, and it can be useful if you're using if you're using things like Chef or Ansible or anything else to, to configure and automate configuration management or provisioning of machines. You can then use Inspect to write tests for that. So when you spin up a new host, you want to make sure that it meets all of your guidelines before even before you get to the application level. Inspect can manage that. Things like checking what packages are installed, checking that services are running, checking that configuration files match the content that they should, that the permissions are right. And with these recent changes, I have not tried this yet, but I'm excited because before there were other tools that existed to test AWS AWS resources, really a whole bunch of them. But I think a lot of people already have Inspect deployed, especially if they are using Chef. So it's a big win. TechSnap.ting.com. If you're on call, if you have a phone that you use for any kind of work purposes, then I recommend you get a bat line. Something simple, something with a lot of battery life, and a number that you only give out to a few select. Maybe something like the One Touch Fling. It's a $20 flip phone. Now, Ting is pay for what you use wireless. You just pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. It's $6 for the line. Ting really is the perfect bat phone carrier. They have CDMA and GSM to pick from. You can bring your own phone or grab something like the One Touch for $20 when you go to techsnap.ting.com. No contract, no agreements, just $20 and then pay for what you use. techsnap.ting.com. Go there, get a bat phone, or get your primary driver. I have three phones on Ting and I'm paying around $40 a month because I only pay for what I use and I've got Wi-Fi at work and at home. techsnap.ting.com. We've scoured the internet and traveled long and far. We've entered the archives, gone through the data, and read the reports. The results are in and it's a big damn mess. It's the return of Spectre. Since we last discussed Meltdown and Spectre, there really has been a lot of development. From patches that may or may not work, to a bunch of neat tools to see if you're affected, and of course, some new variants for us all to worry about. Yeah, with new names. 
Uh, but we'll get there. Why don't we start with some of the basics? Well, let's do a quick review of Meltdown Inspector. So first, Meltdown, or my old friend 5754, as I like to call him. It's a CPU vulnerability that allows a user mode program to access privileged kernel mode memory. It affects all out-of-order Intel processors released since, I don't know, 1995, with the exception of a couple here and there, like the Itanium series and some Atoms. Go check. Your, your processor is almost certainly affected unless you're using one of those fancy AMD processors or several of the ARM variants. Now, Meltdown is kind of a specific attack. You can go read, go check with your OS vendors. We'll do a little more coverage on this program about specific mitigations. That's where we get to Spectre and the news gets a little bit worse. Those are CVE 2017-5753 and 5715. Yeah, there's two of them. There's two variants involved. So Spectre isn't so much a specific vulnerability as it's a new class of attack that takes advantage of unintended side effects of speculative execution. Variant 1 is known as the bounds check bypass, and variant 2 involves branch target injection. Both can potentially allow attackers to extract information from other running processors. Yeah, so we're talking about a series of updates for microcode on the processors and vendor patches for different operating systems, and I do mean a series of patches. Let's start by visiting our friends over in Redmond. Yeah, that's right, Windows. Microsoft's process so far for releasing Windows updates addressing Meltdown Inspector has been a bit of a bumpy road marred by some like high-profile incompatibility issues with antivirus software and AMD processors. Uh, in some cases, delivery of the latest updates had been restricted or suspended, so it's been pretty confusing. That's a theme throughout this whole update, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I recall the back and forth between Red Hat and Intel as to who was responsible for distributing microcode, and Red Hat had eventually just said, you know what, just go get it from Intel. We're out of distributing microcode for a bit. A lot of these updates involved unintended reboots, which, hey, that's never a good thing. I'm still seeing that all the time online, people saying that the systems that they're updating are still rebooting, quote unquote, which means they've crashed. Right. So now you get to choose between an insecure computer or a non-functioning computer. That's not a choice I like to make. But not everything is bad. Microsoft has added some exciting new capabilities to its free Windows analytics service uh, designed to help manage some of this complexity. The new features include a dashboard that highlights the status of antivirus compatibility, Windows security updates, and firmware updates, all in one place for every Windows device you manage. Yeah, this is specifically for IT pros. It's taking some of the analytics that Microsoft has built into Windows 10, and they expose that to IT administrators. And Windows Analytics is really a catch-all label for three separate services, upgrade readiness, update compliance, and device health all of which are pulling telemetry from Windows. Now, most of these are Windows 10 specific, with the exception of upgrade readiness for obvious reasons. So Microsoft is putting their work here. Now, this service, Upgrade Readiness, is typically what Microsoft uses to determine if a Windows 7 or Windows 8 PC could go to Windows 10. Right. And since it's built for 7 and 8, and they want to check machines that go back to 7 and 8, they're like, all right, well, this is where we'll put our Spectre and Meltdown checker in. So now IT administrators can use Upgrade Readiness to determine if systems have been successfully patched against Meltdown Inspector, and then they'll put that information in the dashboard. It's early days right now. In fact, Microsoft, in sort of a almost maybe released it too soon kind of move, but obviously wanted to get this out there, they they noted that you may see a large number of blank or, quote, unknown labels at first. Uh, But they're working hard at that. And they say, rest assured, we'll be working to enhance the data you see in the upgrade readiness as new information becomes available. Yeah, I'm definitely impressed. Uh, it shows some of the advantages of using the Microsoft world. If you if you play in that space uh, and Microsoft happens to solve the problem that you have, 
Often it's well integrated and easy to use. Now, Linux users don't feel left out in the show notes. We have a script for Red Hat, Debian, and just kind of like a general Linux installation script. Now, use these at your own risk because these are just something that are pretty much up on GitHub. But there's generally a few different takes for Linux servers. And, of course, check with your OS vendor of choice to get more details on what patches they provide. Now, looking at the Linux kernel, it appears that version 4.14 and 11 and later contain KPTI, and version 4.15 contains KPTI as well. And the LTS kernels, version 4.975 and 4.4.110, contain KPTI backports. I mention the version numbers here because it's, it's important for you to realize it doesn't just take the absolute latest Linux kernel. It also is backported to 4975 and 44110. As a reminder, KPTI, or kernel page table isolation, is a mitigation for the meltdown vulnerability specifically. You and I first started tracking this when it was called Kaiser, right? That's right. It's evolved since then, and as you mentioned, backported. But as is the theme again, these are complicated issues, and there have has been some discussion that the backports really are structurally somewhat different. So if it makes sense for your workloads, using a, a 4.15 kernel or above may be advised. Another thing to note here is that the meltdown mitigations are only available for 64-bit machines. If you're on 32-bit, unfortunately right now you're out of luck. Uh, patches now exist for variants 1 and 2 of Spectre, but there are, again, some things to note. In particular, variant 2 requires microcode updates in many cases to be truly effective. And with the somewhat sketchy quality we've seen in microcode updates so far, that means there's a lot of systems that may be patched in software, but are therefore not patched all the way. People have been looking at using Retpoline, um, which is a workaround compiler mitigation technique that allows you to, if you recompile code, you can get away with having to use less of the slow microcode fixes. But it turns out to be really complicated, may not even work on Skylake processors. So there's a lot more to come from both of those. While we're talking about patches, FreeBSD finally got mitigated for Spectre and Meltdown, at least mostly this week. There is a meltdown mitigation for Intel CPUs via the KPTI implementation, which is similar to the Linux kernel page table isolation. For their Spectre mitigation, they're currently making use of IBRS, which is indirect branch restricted speculation. Now, this feature, just like it does with the Linux version, requires support from the CPU microcode and is for mitigating the variant 2 vulnerability of Spectre. But I don't believe it covers variant 1. Yeah, to the best of my ability, I could not see any currently available mitigations on FreeBSD for Variant 1 of Spectre. For the latest, though, they've set up a wiki page that's very helpful over on wiki.freebsd.org. It's speculative execution vulnerabilities, so go check there for the latest stats that may be affecting your system. You might be familiar with Brendan Gregg's work. He's a fantastic performance engineer, late of Sun and Joyant. And now over at Netflix, you may be familiar with his awesome D-Trace book or a ton of great eBPF guides he's written for doing tracing and profiling on Linux. And he's just wrote a killer performance regression post about the KPT and Kaiser meltdown impacts on their workloads over at Netflix. So to start out with a bit of drama, he described these as the largest kernel performance regressions he's ever seen. But where you are on that spectrum really depends on your syscall and page fault rates. Due to the extra CPU cycle overheads and your memory working set size and due to the flushing of the TLB on syscalls and context switches, which is part of what KPTI adds, it's because you no longer have any of the kernel's memory mapped in user space. Right, that was where the big savings was. Exactly. 
Now, practically, he's expecting cloud systems in use over at Netflix, and they run a whole bunch of EC2 instances uh, to host a lot of the user experience, the UI that you see. They're expecting somewhere between 0.1% and 6% overhead due to KPTI, mostly due to their syscall rates. 6%, um, that's noticeable. That's, you know, if it's if it's on the higher end of what they're expecting, okay. That's now, about- given his skill set, he is hopeful that he can take that down to somewhere around 2% uh, after some tuning. Yeah, I bet. I bet they can. I've also read, I've, I think Greg KH has sort of implied something similar to that. Yeah, exactly. You may have to change some assumptions, modify some ways that your software is built, but there are some things you can do. It's probably one of the next phase of this thing is people working that out. Yeah, the long-term ramifications. Now, the severity of the performance impact is determined by a couple factors. Firstly, system call rate. Now, of course, that gets worse with more syscalls per second. Brendan estimates that at around 50,000 syscalls per second, the CPU at overhead is something like 2%. Other important factors are context switches, page fault rate, how large of a working set you're using, and what your cache access patterns are. One small bit of good news here is that Linux 4.14 introduced PCID support, which improves performance provided that the processor also has PCID. There's a bunch of new kernel command flags you can use to turn this on or off, uh, but these days it looks like PCID is now a pretty critical performance security feature on x86. So that brings us up today, where we have new variants with new names. That's right. Security researchers from NVIDIA and Princeton have discovered new variants of both Meltdown and Spectre, and bad news, they may be more difficult to tackle than the originals. They're dubbed Meltdown Prime and Spectre Prime. In the paper, researchers note that they believe the hardware protection against these will be distinct, and that means that chipmakers may need to further change their designs to fully mitigate these new threats. The researchers were able to create their own tool to synthesize the Spectre and Meltdown flaws, and then they were able to use those findings to conduct side-channel attacks that took advantage of the physical hardware in the system. These side-channel attacks in this particular set of exploits are cache-based and rely on the timing of cache activity to glean information. The two techniques used in this example are called Prime and Probe, and flush and reload. Mm, This is where the name comes from. Exactly. In the paper, they write that by exploiting cache invalidations, Meltdown Prime and Spectre Prime can leak victim memory at the same granularity as Meltdown and Spectre while using a different timing side channel. Yeah, they also talk about leveraging some software dependencies in the paper, which then essentially allow them to go after any memory location, not just shared memory. Done right. That means privileged kernel memory. While no exploit code has yet been released, the researchers did note that they were successfully able to test Spectre Prime on a modern MacBook. Now, so far, Meltdown Prime and Spectre Prime are really just proof of concept, but I really think they underscore that this is a new class of vulnerability, maybe several new related classes. I fully expect to see a lot more coverage of this in the future, and there's going to be a lot more patches for us to apply. DigitalOcean.com, or even better, go to do.co slash snap, and for a limited time, get a $100 credit to spin up infrastructure over at DigitalOcean.com. Yeah, I said $100 credit. This is a limited time offer. The goal is to get developers and system administrators over at DigitalOcean that haven't tried it before to play with some of their new offerings. You can spin up infrastructure in less than 55 seconds, and they have data centers all over the world. They have an elegant, easy-to-use dashboard to manage all of it, and an API that you can write against to automate all of it. So again, for a limited time, if you go to do.co slash snap, you can get $100 in DigitalOcean credit for the next 60 days for new DigitalOcean customers. do.co slash snap. 
Thanks for going to techsnap.systems slash contact and sending in your question or your show feedback like Simon did. Simon writes, I'm not an IT professional, but often the person in the family and friend circle who is called if the computer doesn't work. On several occasions, I saw Firefox installs on Windows and Linux with adware and malware extensions installed that hijack search and links. My question to you guys and the community, is there a way to disallow adding extensions by the user? Except maybe like a whitelist of extensions I add during the setup of the system? While the user still owns all the config and app profile or big management of the overall system. That's a good question, Simon, and the audience might have a few suggestions. People that are deploying Firefox at scale have probably come across something. I will link you to locking preferences in the show notes. I don't think that's quite what you want, though. So you might also want to take a look at a tool called CCK2, which allows you to customize all kinds of aspects of Firefox, including the add-ons. The CCK2 wizard, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And of course, all of our links, techsnap.systems slash 357. Next up, Ryan writes, Hey guys, I love the show. Been listening for a few years now and glad to see it keeping up with the great quality over the various reboots. Hey, thanks, Ryan. We appreciate it. I also like the audio format. Hey. In, the, in the past, I've always downloaded the video, but mostly just listened to anyway, and always felt like I might be missing something visual. A few weeks ago, you guys were talking about Linux namespaces. It seemed to me from the discussion that one perfect use case for this would be sandboxing. Can you talk a bit about some of the ways we could use namespaces to sandbox applications on desktops and servers? Especially things that provide a broad attack surface, such as web browsers and their plugins, but also any arbitrary code you might want to run but are a bit unclear of its provenance. This is something the Cube's OS project tries to solve with virtualization. We talked about them recently on the show. But would namespaces maybe be enough or better than nothing? And could this actually work? If you really don't want to get into the weeds, a virtual machine is a great way to go. As a technology has been around a lot longer, the security implications are a lot better understood. Namespaces are definitely part of it. And you can do things such as, you know, having a new names a new mount namespace so that a process cannot see a whole bunch of the file system only the parts that it needs but if you really want to go full scale you're going to have to get into the weeds or use some existing tooling things like snap packages and flat packs have this all built in not all of them are perfectly confined but they've already set this up other technologies that exist are things like sepconf app armor and se linux there's also user namespaces, which are not always enabled depending on what container system you're using. So it gets a little bit complicated. I would, it's definitely something to play with, start researching, but there's not a lot of easy answers. There are several helpful tools though. One of them I would point you at is FireJail. It can, it can sandbox all kinds of applications, but one of its primary targets is Firefox. Additionally, Chromium does a pretty good job of trying to sandbox itself already. You can go take a look. We've got a page in the show notes talking about some of the efforts they do, and they do take advantage of a lot of these Linux kernel primitives. And lastly, go check out Bubble Wrap. It seems like somewhere where you could start with some low-hanging fruit like Firefox or maybe a messaging program and experiment and roll it out from there. Take baby steps. If you've got any ideas for Ryan on what he could play with or any questions to the show, we'd love to give more. Go to techsnap.system slash contact if you use that form. Flags it in my inbox, puts it up in big, bold text for me to see it. So that's my preferred way, techsnap.systems slash contact. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. But don't worry, the show keeps on rolling over at techsnap.reddit.com. I'll give a quick mention before we get out of here that I'm going to be at scale in a couple of weeks, March 8th through the 11th, 2018, at the Pasadena Convention Center, the Southern California Linux Expo. If you're in the area, even if you're not going to the event, uh, let me know. I'm at Chris LAS on Twitter, and you can come say hi. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Wes Payne. 
And if you are a Jupiter Signal patron, there is some exciting exclusive news just for you right now. Patreon.com slash Jupiter Signal. There's lots of stuff we're working on, and we'd always appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash Jupiter Signal. And one more glorious plug for the contact page, because we love hearing from you guys. TechSnap.System slash contact. That's TechSnap.Systems slash contact. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. 